This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. What's up, Los Angeles? This is me, your host, Casey Diaz of the Shot Caller Podcast. Hey, you know I love you guys. And you probably, you're probably acting like uh, Dave Chappelle on, on that. Um, when he looks like a, you know, he's feeding for, uh, for another uh, hit of, some, of something. And uh, I know that you need another podcast episode. So I've waited all this time to give you a good interview. And lo and behold, I got a tremendous guest here that I'm going to be um, interviewing in a second here. But I wanted to um, just kind of give you what's going on in our beautiful city that, well, it's not so beautiful at the moment. Um, I think that all you have to do is turn on the news and in the first, what, three seconds, 10, a minute or so, there's somebody being followed into their home, being robbed, being assaulted. Uh, the homicide rate is at an all-time high. We've never seen these numbers. Uh, these numbers haven't been this high since, I want to say, you know, we had a big problem, right, in 1985. And I, could, I would say 1995 is, is that 10-year period where we just lost it. We lost our city. The uh, gangs had really did so much harm. Um, uh, obviously, you know my story. I was one of the problems. And, um, and then the law decided that they needed to implement some big changes. In 1992, we got the, two, uh, the three strikes law uh, uh, being presented to us. It came into play, and that law pretty much put away a lot of uh, a lot of gang leadership, which was needed. And then we had several decades after that that kind of were pleasant. We saw the city do a lot of good. Uh, gangs had uh, been put away. Uh, people were working. People were being successful. Businesses weren't getting taxed, uh, at least not as much uh, as when, uh, you know, uh, everything was going haywire with crime. And now we're here in 2022, and those numbers are just out of control. And uh, so what are we going to do about that as a community, as a people? What needs to be changed? Um, there, there's so much this this. This whole subject is so loaded, and, and, and uh, I don't know, where do we even start, right? Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if you haven't subscribed yet, I don't know what you're waiting for, because you should. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, it, it's in my, uh, and maybe I'm biased, but I think we have something really special here. 
because we bring in interviews that have to do with faith, that have to do with uh, men and women that have made horrible mistakes in their past. And then we have the side where we uh, interview law enforcement of all kind. Um, so if you haven't subscribed, go ahead and do that. If you want to support the, the, uh, this podcast, it's very easy. Just go to kcds.net, hit the podcast button on there, which will take you to the support button. And there it gives you three ways to go ahead and uh, become a monthly supporter of this show. Um, and I want to thank every single one of you that do that already. With me today is somebody that I had the privilege and the honor of meeting a few weeks back through a, a, a law enforcement friend of mine. And um, I got to tell you, uh, I couldn't believe when uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it took a lot of prayer because I thought there's no way that this guy's going to sit down with me. Uh, one, because he is a, a, he retired as a very high-ranking uh, LAPD uh, uh, member, uh, officer, and, um, well, I don't want to call him officer because he's way beyond that. Uh, but um, with us today... I have the privilege of introducing to you Captain Richard Mraz. Thank you so much for being here, uh, Captain Richard. Uh, uh, it is an honor to have you here on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Casey. It's also very much an honor for me to be here uh, in your podcast, um, getting to know you better. And notwithstanding, we met for the first time just a few weeks ago. I've had the um, honor of reading your book, as a matter of fact, and um my esteem for you, my my uh, pride in you, and um, and the positive aspect I've have in getting to know you better uh, really is special for me. So thank you for allowing me to be here with you today. Yeah, I have a. Uh, I always when when I have law enforcement here, I always you guys are special to me. And I'll tell you why. Um, I think that you know. Um, Maybe because in movies and in documentaries, uh, they always portray something different. Uh, mm. Most people really, really at the core of us, it's hard to uh, accept a redemption story. Uh, and, and partly, I think, because many uh, will call uh, jailhouse religion exactly that. Uh, you know, somebody says or professes to be a Christian, and then the second that the doors open to that jail or to that prison... They're back to the same old lifestyle. Uh, but there is a very small percentage of men and women that really take that serious and come out and, and do something productive. My life has been something that um, I, I dedicated to helping the community and creating that bridge with guys like you and um, law enforcement uh, altogether because I think it's important. I think we have something that needs to be seen uh, by the public, by our nation, uh, in order to heal and to educate that the police, the police force, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Any, any civilized society needs to understand that, that we need folks like you guys to, to bring order, to bring safety into our communities. And, and we need that. We need you guys. Um, and, and I think it's um, so unique that God has allowed us to, to be sitting across each, uh, across each other to hear your story. I don't want to talk about mine. I want to hear 
how did you get how where does the story of Richard Moraes, Captain Richard Moraes, how does that start? Uh, in it does it start in Los Angeles? Where does that start? Well, it does start in Los Angeles. I was born and raised in East LA. Just let me qualify that that um, I, I'm a true believer that um, problems are always opportunities. And I've seen I've been involved in law enforcement for over almost 58 years. Wow. And I've seen it ebb and flow, uh, the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, and um, what you just summarized when you started uh, this program just now is that we are in a crisis time. And, and I think it's a tremendous opportunity uh, to work together again because police can't do it alone. It has to be with the public. And, um, and I think that now is a perfect opportunity to make our, the life and the quality of life in our city, particularly Los Angeles, uh, even better than it was before. So I just wanted to qualify that and put that out. But as far as your question, uh, for me, it started in East L.A. I was born and raised in Boyle Heights, a large Mexican family, aunts, uncles, cousins. Um, I went to Euclid Avenue Grammar School in, uh, in the heart of Boyle Heights, went to Resurrection Grammar School, which was a Catholic school. Uh, the nuns and the priests straightened me out a little bit. <laughs> and uh, went to Cathedral High School. always wanted to be a cop. Um, and the first chance I got when I was 20 and a half, I started testing. And I was uh, 21 years, three months when I started the LAPD Academy. Wow. Uh, and that uh, led me in, into a, a life of law enforcement, which for me has had its ups and downs, but has probably been to this day one of the most fulfilling things for me in terms of my connection to the community and the people that we serve in law enforcement. And did you did you serve in the military as well, or or you just went straight into straight into the law academy? enforcement? I, I I never was in the military. Um, the Vietnam War was was uh, was was part of uh, my my life back then. Um, it seemed like I was always one step ahead of the draft, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Got married when I was uh, just before I went in the academy. Had children right away, so that always kept me home. But my contribution to that whole unrest was. Uh, serving with an LAPD in the city of LA. Different times when you started. Oh man, completely different times. <laughs> I mean, uh, August 4th, 1964 is when I started day one of the LAPD Academy. Whole different department, whole different city. William H. Parker was our chief. He was a living legend at the time. I just turned, uh, like I said, 21. I was married, had a one-month-old daughter at home. I was making $604 a month. Uh, never made so much money in all my life. That was a lot I, of money, man. I, oh, man, I did, I did the math. I, I multiplied it by 12, and it came out to just over $7,000. I was three years out of high school. I called all my buddies, and I said, I am making $7,000 a year. And they went nuts. <laughs> oh, my God, you're rich. I said, yeah, what are you doing? I said, I'm the academy. Come on, join LAPD. We'll get rich together. That's hilarious. <laughs> you know, and, and so you got to see uh, Disney where when it was – Affordable. <laughs> oh yeah, well, you know the e-ride, the tickets, and all that kind of stuff. I, I mean, I was a. What really motivated me as well was obviously Dragnet, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then uh, Adam Twelve kicked in behind that. Adam Twelve. Uh, That's a great show. Yeah. So all that, uh, all, all that impacted me, and I uh, was able to hit the ground running from that standpoint. City was different. Uh, yeah. All the skylight. Buildings, skyscraper buildings you see in downtown LA today as you approach the city, not a single one was there. 
biggest building was City Hall, 27 floors high. Wow. Uh, you went to the top floor. You had a 360-degree view of the city. If it wasn't smoggy. <laughs> uh, 12-week academy. We had um, no women were in our class. That came later. Uh, my badge said police man. Uh, we had police uh, police women on the job, but um, they weren't. In, they had a separate academy. They didn't work a black and white. They worked the jail. They worked the desk. They worked juvenile. Their badge said police woman. <laughs> And uh, big change several years later uh, hit LAPD, the side of the head, consent decree. You know, LAPD is one of the most stubborn law enforcement agencies in the nation to this day. Like nobody tells us what to do. So (laughs) one of the ways you change that department is what we call a consent decree. So we had a consent decree called the Franchon Blake consent decree, a policewoman who sued the city, sued the department. She wanted to get in a black and white, and she won. And just like that, uh, our badges changed from policeman, policewoman to police officer. Uh, women were in the academy. Women got in a black and white. Uh, best thing that ever happened in law enforcement, as far as I'm concerned. That's awesome. I mean, it, and I like how you, you you talk about the early days of Los Angeles and you as a police officer at that time. Um, I think we had a mellow Los Angeles. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that when I sit down with a gentleman of your age, um, you guys lived in a good era, man. I we, mean, I look back at the programs. I look back at the history of Los Angeles. It was, it was so. It was wholesome. I, I would say it was. It was still wholesome. Uh, very different than what we have now. It was, and, and in Boyle Heights, East LA, it was a. It was a melting pot. You know, there were. My friends in, in elementary school were Russians and Jewish and Hispanic and blacks, and, and, and we all kind of um, capitalized on that yeah. in terms of culture and appreciating each other and food and restaurants and things of that nature. Very in, we, we were very innocent, so to speak. Uh, when I tell people that there are uh, still Jewish temples in Boyle Heights, they're closed down now, but... The buildings still exist, mm-hmm. and when I tell people that, they they go, "No, there isn't." Well, yeah, there is. Yeah, and and, and you know when they find out, it's like, what? Because we think about Boyle Heights and exactly, you know, Cantor's <laughs> restaurants were very famous in Fair, on Fairfax Boulevard. Yes. The original Cantor's was on uh, on uh, uh, Brooklyn and Soto. Oh wow! It's now Caesar Chavez and Soto. Yeah, yeah. Right on the corner there. I remember we used to go in there and eat pastrami's, and eventually they closed and moved. Yeah. Fairfax, but people don't realize the original one was in Boyle Heights. Boyle Heights, in the a, heart of Boyle Heights. It has such a rich uh, history. Uh, the Sears Building. Oh yeah, <laughs> that was amazing. That Sears Building, everything was Sears. The catalog, yeah. the catalog, and, uh, the multi floors, everything, every shoes, all the shoes I had, pants, From shirts, Sears Robux, uh, furniture, the refrigerator. <laughs> before we got out of the ice box, we used to have ice ice boxes before. Yeah, Sears made. Yeah, I remember when my, my mom took me there for the very first time. I was a little kid, and we went and bought clothes there. And I was so used to the MacArthur Park area. So when we took a bus and walked into this Sears Robux there, I, I was, you know, it, it was like Candyland to me. Mm-hmm. I thought it was like a super mall. You know, you're a little kid, little boy, and you're going, wow. Uh, I'm used to buying clothes from El Piojito. On MacArthur Park, and here we are at Sears. We've made it, you know <laughs> that kind of feeling. Yeah. Um, so you you go into in, into 
to law enforcement. You're a young guy, man, 21 years old. Um, that's kind of that. What was your first day out on the beat? Well, uh, I I was a little different with, for my class mm -hmm. in that um, we started with 104 of us in the academy, 104 ready to go. As time progressed, it was only 12 weeks back then. Yeah. The entire academy, three months. Today it's uh, it's uh, it's six months. The whole academy, and, and uh, <clears throat> but we started with 100, and then about starting about the second week, every so often, the back door of the classroom would open, and a individual would holler names, and we'd all freeze, and uh, it would be you know, four or five names, and say um, Jones, Smith, Hernandez, uh, get your hat and your books and follow me. And they'd get all their hat and books, and they'd go out the back door with this individual, and we'd never see him again. That wow, what happened to that? You know, well, they didn't <laughs> yeah. make it. And oh, so, wow. a little by little, you know, dwindled down to the '90s, '80s, '70s, and finally, we reached a point where we're all going to make it. You know, we uh, we got about a week, two weeks left. We're graduating, and now I'll be darned if that back door didn't open again, and we all kind of stiffened up a little bit, and only one name was called Mraz. Oh, and I thought, oh, I didn't make it. And but they didn't say bring your hat and books, and uh, they said come with us. So I turned back and looked, and it's two guys. They don't look like cops. And I left the classroom, and we went into a little side room, and they were undercover narcotic detectives. And they said, "How would you like to work undercover?" That's no what we called way. You and I, I said, "Hell yeah!" <laughs> <laughs> Just like Dad Bragdon. And they wow. said, "Okay, here's the deal." They said, uh, "You're going to graduate with your class." Um, you're going to graduate, and Monday morning, next week, uh, report to narcotics headquarters. You're going to work undercover by program. You're going to be a heroin addict, and you're going to go buy narcotics from heroin dealers in the city of L.A., and uh, we'll brief you then. We'll train you, and you're going to do it for three months. And when the next class graduates three months from now, we're going to pick somebody from that class who's going to relieve you. You're going to surface. We're going to arrest all the narcotic dealers you made heroin buys from. And I said, I'm good for that. And sure enough, that's how I started my career. The training, things were much different back then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll give you an example real quick. I, they trained me for um, four hours. They told me things like, um, you're going to have to use your own car. We don't have a car for you. Don't wash it. Don't clean it. Uh, don't shave. Don't cut your hair. Uh, they showed me photographs of heroin dealers at the Grand Central Market at 3rd and Broadway. That's where you're operating. Uh, we want you to buy heroin from them. Don't buy weed. Don't buy pills. Just strictly heroin. When you buy it, run back to Parker Center, the old Parker Center. Come in the back door. We'll book it. You can go back out in the street. They're going to chase you down the street once you they sell from you. But three three maximum. That's it. Just make three buys. That's it. Um, you're not going to have a partner, so don't wear a gun. Uh, be very careful. Watch your back. Uh, you, that'll burn you if they see you with a gun. You're no good to us. You go back to patrol. Um, about four hours later, they said, any questions? I said, no. They said, good luck. And the next thing I know, I'm walking to 3rd and Broadway from the old Parker Center thinking, what in the hell am I supposed to do? <laughs> and over the next three months, I made a lot of heroin buys, ran back to Parker Center. They'd book it. And then about three months later, they said, clean up, sh shave, cut your hair, put your uniform on, doing the roundup. And they brought these people um, into the Parker Center screaming, hollering, what have you got me for? I walk into the interview room in my Class A uniform. They look at me and, oh, my God, he's a cop. They knew they'd been had by then. Yeah, yeah. So as a result of that assignment, when I finally worked patrol, got into a black and white, it was Central Division, uh, where all the veterans worked. Rampart, uh, where I eventually became a captain and we'll probably talk about later, hadn't even been built yet. 
They were just starting to build a station. Wow. So uh, when I finally got in black and white, that's where all the veterans work. Uh, I worked with 30-year veterans, cops that came on in the 1930s. Wow. So you can imagine what I've seen. Yeah. And what uh, what I've how I was trained, and I won't share any of those stories today. I promise them I take it to the grave. <laughs> just, seen, just say I've seen a lot of change. On that yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, man. That's, I mean, essentially, they're, act, they're asking you to act uh, a part. Yeah. I mean, you could have made just, it in Hollywood, man. <laughs> so I was, uh, you know, I, I remember I was standing in the corner one time, and I was with a drug dealer, and we were waiting for somebody else to show up, and my, my Theo Nacho came walking down the street, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and he started coming up to me like, wow, you know, oh, and I'm no. thinking, oh, he's going to burn me. Yeah, yeah. And I must have given him a look that clicked because after about two steps, he stopped, he looked the other way, and he kept on going. That's <laughs> funny. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, you know, so, so here you are, you know, you get a taste of, I mean, that's got to be some adrenaline there. You know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I got a black and white work patrol, uh, did my probation. Uh, I, they, we call what's called the wheel. After you finish your, your first year and your new assignment, they move you out whether you want to go or not. It's called the wheel, so you can write in your perspective. And I went from Central to, it was called University Division back then. Today they call it Southwest near the Coliseum. Mm-hmm. Worked uh, patrol there for about a year and a half. Then I got into the vice unit and worked vice for about a, another year and a half. Um, I have three kids by now. Uh, my marriage is falling apart. I'm a workaholic. I'm hardly ever at home. Um, I had about four years on. Uh, a lot of change in law enforcement. There was a lot of terrorism going on back then, the, the start of terrorism, mm-hmm. uh, anti-Vietnam marches. Uh, the civil rights movement was in full bloom. There was a lot of marches, demonstrations. Um, I get wind that a new division is going to be formed called Intelligence Special. Uh, with my four years on, I decided, well, I'll, I got about a year and a half of patrol, two, almost two years under my belt. I'm going to try for that. I did. I got selected to my shock. Uh, eight of us to start. Uh, we, would, we were called Intelligence Division, uh, Intelligence Special, rather. We were the, the nucleus, the eight of us. I had a partner uh, that would eventually start to investigate groups that became known as the Black Panther Party, the Brown Berets, the Chicano Liberation Front, the Black Guerrilla Family, Simbae's Liberation Army. Uh, we grew a- as a division. Um, with about five years, I made s- I promoted to sergeant. Uh, I was ready to go back to patrol. Uh, my partner Alex Salazar and I were in the middle of investigating 18 bombings in the city of LA wow. by the Chicano Liberation Front. People forget about this era. Yeah. So we were working with our conspiracy uh, section to find out who did it, connect the cell in Fresno that existed, the Chicano Liberation Front there. Uh, they asked me to stay. I wanted to stay. I got the stripes of sergeant. I never went uh, to, to patrol working as a sergeant. I didn't get that experience under my belt. That's one thing I would change in my career if I ever could go back and do that. Uh, but I remained in, uh, in uh, Intelligence Special, which eventually grew and became Anti-Terrorist Division. With about nine years on, I uh, promoted to what's called Detective Three. Uh, died and went to heaven. Ba- take home car, bilingual pay. Um, I'm making patrol lieutenants pay. I'm starting a squad of called an anti-terrorist unit. And uh, as a detective three on LAPD, I did that for the next 18 years of my career. Wow. I literally went into a hole, so to speak. Yeah. While the department changed completely, I, I got divorced. Uh, the department has always been very good to me. I uh, got involved in planning for the 84 Olympics. Seven, uh, four, uh, 
I'm sorry, uh, we started planning seven years before for the 84 games. I went to the um, Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, to the Pan American Games in Puerto Rico. Uh, we went to Germany, Munich, to look at the Munich massacre to bring that back in terms of training of how they massacred the, some of the Israeli uh, athletes there. Uh, I had a top secret clearance. Our chief, Daryl Gates, had a top secret clearance at the time. I became very close to him. Uh, I briefed him every other week for two years on terrorist threats leading up to the 84 games. There were none f to speak of. I saw a whole different side of him, very controversial chief, very popular on LAPD. I learned a lot about leadership and sensitivity from him. Most of our conversations were father-son talks. Um, my father committed suicide my senior year in high school. Oh, wow. He had a son seven years younger than me who was a heroin addict. A lot of our talks were father-son. Uh, the Olympic Games uh, came and went. They were successful. I played a big role in that, in the counter building the counterterrorism um, entity to deal with those games. When the games ended, I hit 20 years. I vested a pension. Came close to quitting. I almost did. I was going to write a book, give terrorist <laughs> talks. He talked me into staying. He said, make the tenant. You've been a Detective 3 long enough. I took him up on it. Um, I took the test three times. It's every two years. It took me six years to pass it. I finally did. And in um, May of 1991, I promoted to lieutenant on LAPD, put the uniform on for the first time in over 22 years, over my head, scared to death. <laughs> uh, Gates called me in his office, congratulated me, gave me the badge he wore when he was a lieutenant in 1954. Um, Big significant part of my life. Uh, this was two months after the Rodney King incident occurred in Foothill Division. Mm -hmm. That video is showing over and over again. LAPD is getting investigated by the Christopher Commission and the FBI. Um, so a Rodney King occurred March 3rd, 1991. I made Lieutenant May of 1991, two months later. Gates calls me in, congratulates me, promotes me, and sends me to Foothill. Furthest division from my house. Over my head, scared to death. Uh, Christopher Commission is all over the place. And uh, that's how I got back into operationals. I, I was a PM watch commander, and that started me on my operational career uh, for LAPD. I mean, that is a lot of, uh, that's a lot of uh, detail, a lot of uh, change uh, mm -hmm. that comes about in, in your life. Um, so, so you're in Foothill. How, how long did you stay in Foothill? I was in Foothill for about uh, two and a half years. I was a watch commander my first six months, and then I went over to the detective side and uh, handled all the, the, the homicides, robberies, all, all the follow-up investigation um, while I was a, a, a lieutenant. But was it a slower pace? Because, you know, you're coming from Los Angeles, and then you're going into the foothills. It, uh, from my perspective, it really, I couldn't compare and contrast because yeah. I had been working specialized for so long. Okay. So Foothill was one of 18 LAPD divisions at the time. Uh, to this day, the, the city of LA is, is broken into four parts. That's the way we police it. Okay. Um, each part of those four parts is called a bureau. So Operations Valley Bureau, which is the northern part of the city, um, San Fernando, Silmar area, uh, we have Foothill in North Hollywood and, and um, uh, a Devonshire division, uh, five different divisions. And then, and then we have West Bureau, Operations West Bureau, which is the better part of the city of L.A., just to give you a little history lesson very quick yeah, yeah. so our listeners can kind of follow yeah. uh, how, how LAPD still operates to this day. 
So Operations West Bureau is the better part of the city of L.A. for all intents and purposes. West L.A. Division is there, which uh, has the city of Beverly Hills in the heart of the command, UCLA, Bel Air, Hollywood, the Hollywood sign, Wilshire Division, the, the Wilshire District. Yeah. Um, and then we have the east side, which is called Operations Central Bureau, uh, Northeast Division, Dodger Stadium, Hollenbeck, East L.A., where I was born and raised, Rampart Division, that less than eight square mile command, uh, that I eventually went to as a captain, uh, shoot Newton division. Um, and, uh, and then we go to the, what we call the South end operation, South Bureau, 77th, uh, Southeast, uh, Southwest, uh, Harbor, uh, all the way down to the San Pedro area. Yeah. So we have four bureaus, uh, two, two dev, a deputy chief and a commander oversees each bureau and each division runs itself run by two captains. And uh, each is like a police department on its own. So when I went to Foothill, I was in Valley Bureau, uh, and uh, and I dealt with all the the crime in, in Foothill, one of the biggest divisions back then, uh, sixty three square miles, and it's a big uh, area, a big big area. What was going on in uh, Hollenbeck, East LA, uh, was not really connected to me. Uh, I didn't really deal with it. So at that point in my career, I was dealing with crime in in in, uh, in that's when the North Hollywood shootout, the Bank of America thing. Yeah. Uh, occurred shortly thereafter. Yeah, that was, uh, was that 90? Yeah, that was in the 90s. Uh, or something uh, like that? Yeah, but by then I was a captain at Rampart. Okay. I was in Ramp when that occurred, and a lot of my Rampart caps uh, officers were getting black and whites and heading up to North Hollywood to try to control that. And I remember I had just uh, got out of work, and uh, I was working a graveyard, came home, turned off the news, turned on the news, and that's on the news. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, they, these two dudes, they're they're going to end up killing a lot of people. That was uh, that was amazing. It changed a lot of the way we operated back yeah. then. But it was that was horrific. It was horrific. And and watching that and going, how in the world did no one end up getting killed except them two? Yeah, uh, that was incredible. Uh, I mean, you know, they're armed to the teeth and and heavily uh, armored themselves. Uh, I remember just l- watching bullets just kind of like bounce off of their body armor like nothing. And uh, th- th- that was quite of a, it, that was traumatic yeah, for the was, city. It was, of, it, it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, but what a great job that you guys uh, pulled in, uh, in, in stopping them from destroying somebody. I mean, th- there was a, obviously the trauma that is left behind. Yes. The pieces that in any crime, have to be picked up. And, um, and there was officers that were shot uh, who, whose lives were changed uh, forever. Um, but I, I think just watching it and, and then looking at it and how you guys handled it, to me, I, I, you know, it was an, an amazing job on your end. You know, that's a dynamic uh, that I'd like to just mention real briefly. Yeah. Is, is in my, Again, in my 58 years in law enforcement, it's, uh, many times I look at our relationship with the community and it ebbs and flows. Uh, they love us, then they hate us. It's a love-hate relationship. and It depends on what's going on in the country, and, and, and it doesn't matter what part of the country it occurs. Um, when a bad thing with law enforcement happens uh, and it's publicly publicized, uh, it has a ripple effect that affects law enforcement across the country. And the media being as powerful as it is, uh, the, 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 the general community responds with it. 
So we have, uh, it ebbs and flows. And uh, during the, after the 84 Olympics, the whole world loved us because of the way we handled it. Um, That incident, the North Hollywood shootout, uh, that played a tremendous role in the public again embracing us. The Rodney King incident, the riots that followed, uh, we went downhill. So we've ebbed and flowed um, as a result of that. And that's one issue that law enforcement must always um, be sensitive to and, and deal deal with. Um, you know, I think we eventually win back the country by constitutional policing and how we treat the public. But uh, that's an example of, of first they love us, then they hate us, and that was one of the heights of when the public really appreciated law enforcement. Yeah, it's like, a, what, it's like what happened with, after 9-11. Mm-hmm. I mean, the country comes it, it, together. It comes together, yes. Uh, with, with, unfortunately, tragic events like that. It just uh, and that's I think that's the beauty of the fiber of America that unfortunately it's traumatic moments like that uh, where there's just devastation and for some reason that brings us together and, and neighbors start to look out for neighbors and, and there's conversation once again which I think is so valuable yes. Uh, so Robert Peel. Uh, many times, we even in law enforcement don't don't uh, study our history. Well, who are we? What do we stand for? Where do we come from? What is our purpose? Um, and we're chosen by the community as guardians, centurions, to protect society. Um, and we can't do it alone. And Sir Robert Peel, the philosophy that he established in the in the 1800s was that the people are the police, and the police are the people, and that and that we must unite and have common values and, and work together and uh, and take a shared responsibility and accountability for crime. Um, and unfortunately, many times the police are looked at as the ones that have to solve it all. Homelessness, traffic, uh, everything. And it, it, the burden is put on police officers that to the point where we don't even understand our role. Uh, but that's a, a, that's a key point uh, that when we are accepted by the community and we are together, crime drops. Yeah, I, yeah, people call the police. People uh, come outside their homes. Uh, we're more confident. There's a shared responsibility and accountability, and crime starts to nose that. Well, I, I've seen that over and over again. And you're right. Um, I I, I, I uh, remember um, when I was a kid, uh, police officers would still walk on the streets uh, in some areas, and they would hand us baseball cards. And I thought that was the, the neatest thing. Because we would, you know, I still grew up in, the, in that time where we played outside and there was about 15, 20 kids out there from the neighborhood. And out of nowhere, uh, you know, two patrolmen walking down this, the block. I don't know where they parked or whatever, how they got there. But they would be walking down there and then they would approach all the, uh, all, and all the kids came together. We all, n- nobody ran away from the police. We just came together and we knew what that meant. That meant we're getting baseball cards for free. And we get the baseball game. Everybody was happy, right? Um, my first encounters with with uh, LAPD, uh, and I talk about it in, in, in my book, is that uh, initially I saw you guys as, as great folks. Um, there's an incident that happens in my story where um, at the corner of Ninth and Kenmore, it's very late at night. Uh, my father has just beat my mom senselessly, and I run out the door and. I'm about, I don't know, eight years old. I'm in the corner of 9th and Kenmore. And uh, 
this police cruiser happens to come up the hill from there, uh, up from Fedora, and um, and he, you know, they stop and puts the, the flash, flashlight on me, and he notices that that's a young kid there. And I remember the driver coming out, and so was the, the passenger police officer, and they asked me. And I, they gave me a sense of hope in that moment. Um, I remember them taking me to the apartment. Uh, one of them walked with me while the other one drove his patrol car. Um, that, to me, was an incredible moment. Um, so I've had some great encounters with you guys prior to me being a, becoming a knucklehead out there. Uh, so, you're, you're, so you do two years in, in uh, the foothills. Then you end up at Rampart? No, I, I, I'm still a lieutenant. Okay. Uh, there's a freeze, by the way, for promotions based on budget issues. So um, my next logical promotion uh, would be what's called a lieutenant two. It's a lieutenant one. Lieutenant two is, is a step above. And generally, back then, you become a you can be a commanding officer of a division as a lieutenant. Doesn't exist again, uh, today, but back then we had that structure. Okay. So um, the freeze lifted. I was uh, I was a detective uh, in charge of detectives at Foothill. Uh, I started getting phone calls. You know, would you like to apply for this? Apply for that? An adjutant for a deputy chief? And so I threw my hat in several rings. And one of the positions that I got was called Employee Opportunity and Development Division which was a division that handled discrimination complaints, recruitment, things of that nature. I got selected, and I became a lieutenant CO, so to speak. Had my mini command, maybe about 85 people. And so I left Port Foothill, went to Parker Center, and I actually had my office um, on the seventh floor there at Parker Center. Uh, during that tenure, I started studying for captain. Um, backing up a little bit, when I, when I was at Foothill, uh, I was single. I was never going to get married again, and if I did, I wasn't going to have any more children. Um, I and I really saw the light at the end of the tunnel when I would retire. And uh, one of the f- changes in Foothill, because of Rodney King, is during that two-month period when Rodney King occurred, and I came in as a watch commander, the department, the way they handled that type of a incident, about 150 officers in Foothill were moved out called administratively transferred. Wow. What, what criteria the degree used, uh, the department used, or I don't know. 150 new ones came in. Wow. One of those 150 was my future wife, Loretta. <laughs> uh, I spotted her at roll call. <laughs> uh, she had a two-year-old son named Eric. Okay. Uh, we eventually got together. Uh-huh. Uh, when I went to detective, uh, it, was, it was okay to do because I wasn't her watch commander anymore, and that's, that's when she came after me. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's so, your side of the so story. So I realized, you know, I want to get married again. Uh, when I have children again, I asked her to marry me. She said yes. She had been a police officer for 10 years. We got married. She left the department. Uh, I, I adopted Eric. I realized I wanted to have kids. We wasted no time. Within 13 months, we had two kids. I want to stick around. I'm going to, make, I'm going to study for captain. And so now I moved to EODD. Um, she's at home. She's my wife. I studied for captain. And to my shock, I come out number two on the list when the list is published. And in August of 1995, they promote me to captain of LAPD. More over my head, more scared to death. I'm waking up nauseated thinking, really? what does a captain do on LAPD? Like, 
I'm, I don't think I'm ready to be a captain. And, and worse, uh, they wind up sending me to Rampart, mm. one of the most violent, one of the most intense, one of the highest profile commands, not only in LAPD at the time, but in the country. More over my head, more scared to death. Uh, and at home, I have a one-month-old, a 13-month-old, a four-year-old, and a young wife. And August 1995, I hit the ground running in Rampart. You come in into a place that is exactly what you said. It is chaos. It is, it is, the homicide rate is, I mean, just soaring. Uh, drugs are all over the place. Uh, violent crime, not just with gangs, but just violent crime sweeping that whole entire area. Uh, I remember, I remember uh, when they would uh, empty out MacArthur Park, the the, uh, the little uh, the the water uh, the lake the lake, and they would always find bodies. They would always find uh, all kinds of evidence, guns. They would find everything there, and um, so you walk into this place. It's not nowhere near Boyle Heights. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't look like anything. It looks like war is happening. In this city, that's a lot to take for you to step in, and and as it is, you're already nauseous <laughs> of your promotion. <laughs> I don't know if you're having trouble sleeping, and this is your, your this is your this is what's handed to you. How do you go forward from that? Well, I'll put it in perspective, um, even more stark, starkly, so to speak. Uh, one of the things I was dealing with internally. Um, was that I promoted a little bit too fast. Mm. If you recall, I said that I, I, uh, the operational part of the department, which is the heart and soul of it, yeah. is the, the, the uniforms, the black and whites in the street, the, the, the intensity and the, and the jugular issues that occurred, I never experienced that because I worked 18 years in counterterrorism. So there's no intensity. There's no stress. I don't even know what's going on in patrol. It's m- it, mostly it's, mental. It's and, mental, uh, what I read in the paper yeah. or what people share with me at retirements or whatever the case may be. I'm in charge of a, of a unit, uh, and we handle international terrorism, obviously, yeah. uh, on a local, state, and, and national level. So there's no that intensity isn't there yeah. as a Detective 3. I went from de- when I When I made lieutenant, and I finally got into the operational side. I went from a detective three to lieutenant to a captain in four years. That's too fast. That's fast. Way too fast. Um, the fact that I was never a field sergeant as a, uh, when I gave up that uh, kicks in now. So now I'm going to be in Rampart, and I am um, as a as a, one of the two captains. There's a captain three, which is a senior captain, and the captain one, Rich Moraz. We both are in charge of that division. My first, and, and, and again, just to put it in perspective. LAPD ended the year 2019 with 251 homicides citywide, 21 divisions, 251 total homicides. Rampart, my first month, August of 1995, in that less than eight square mile command, we had 20 homicides. We ended the year with 104 total. Wow. Two years before, we had 164 homicides just in Rampart. So you compare that to two, uh, 2019, 251 total homicides, the entire city. Yeah. You can, it, it's indescribable to be able to put in words the fear, the pain, the, uh, 
the violence, the constant pressure and stress of a community that we were dealing with. Um, I had two of the most violent gangs in the nation as far as we were concerned, 18th Street and Manasawa Trucha. Yeah. Uh, 18th Street was uh, 75 years old. Mm-hmm. We had 2,500 documented members. My first two years alone, they were responsible for just over 50 homicides. Marasaba Trucha, MS, relatively new gang. They were only eight years old. Today, they're in 10 different states. Um, and uh, crossing borders. Yes, crossing borders. So uh, in terms of the violence, the crime, the incidents, I, I could share stories with you that would just dr- uh, make you so emotional. Things that we saw uh, that happened in the street. Uh, example, there were so many drive-bys, so many shootings every night. Uh, you can imagine the number because if I tell you 104 were murdered, that doesn't even put in perspective the number that were shot that weren't murdered, yeah. or just the ones that were that rounds were fired and nobody was hit. So, um, if 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 a young family with young kids lived in the heart of the violence, which is generally the MacArthur Park area or the Pico Union area, yeah. and they lived in the first or second floor of that apartment, and 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 uh, and their bedroom faced the street side. When they put their young children to bed at night, they wouldn't put them to bed in the bedroom because a stray round can come flying in a window or a wall. They would put their precious young children to bed at night in the bathroom, yeah. in, the be- in the bathtub, because the bathroom is insulated by several walls, and the bathtub itself would serve to protect their children. Um, that's just one example of the fear that the community was living under and the stress of just all the violence that was going on. Uh, I remember... More than one occasion, mom's in the kitchen. She's cooking. She lives in the first floor of that of that area. Uh, she hears rounds coming in her direction, live rounds. She panics. She drops what she's doing. She makes a beeline to the living room window because she knows her mijo is out front and he's a gang member. And as she makes it to the window, the rounds are still flying. Not only is he taken out, but so is she. I'm getting emotional right now just thinking about it. She takes a headshot and she dies in the living room of her own apartment. You talk about outrage, not only from the community, but from us. Who called that shot? What gang was involved in that? Um, it's, it, 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 I'm not making excuses, but it's forcing us to go beyond the edge. A young couple pulled into a strip mall one time. Um, it's du- It's dusk. Uh, 11-year-old daughter's in the back seat. She's doing her homework. Mom and dad go in the 7-Eleven. Two rival gangs show up at each end of the strip mall. Uh, they could care less who gets caught in their crossfire, and they open up. And that beautiful little 11-year-old girl takes a headshot and a chest shot and dies in the back seat of that family car. Uh, I still remember the screaming, the emotion, the command post sending young, impressionable cops out on a follow-up, teary-eyed as they look at that car. They can relate. They have young children. Uh, Just dealing with that violence, keeping things in perspective, holding even the community back who wants justice, uh, holding cops back who want to give them justice and cross the line if necessary, uh, was one of the biggest challenges, chaotic. Uh, In my three years, I was at Rampart for three years and dealt with that on a Consistent basis. Yeah, so I, I grew up in in, in that uh, Belmont High School area. Uh, area, um, uh, our gang was one of those problematic gangs that were in that area. We shared ter- territory with uh, Colombia. Uh, you're familiar with them. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, I, I remember uh, we'd come out of Belmont High School, and there would be about you know two hundred dudes from Eighteenth Street, and another hundred dudes from Rockwood, mm-hmm. and the fear, you know, and, and as as gang members, and this is the thing that that I think the public needs to understand. The f- gangs operate. Fear is what what really gang members enjoy. That there's no there's no other word for that. That they, they gravitate, they parade that. And uh, I I remember you know now as an adult, and and I look back, and I think about the regular students, the the, the kids that just wanted to be there. They had no other choice but to attend that school. That was their area school. And all they wanted to do was going was to go to school, enjoy sports or whatever it was or their academic, you know. And you walk out and you're seeing 300 gang members outside. The terror that was caused in that time. Uh, and, and I was already when you were being promoted to captain, I'm already, you're 95. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got out of prison in, in 95 as well, July 3rd. So you're getting promoted, and I guess I'm getting promoted out. <laughs> you know, and and uh, so I was part of that problem very early on when it started um, in, in late 80s, early 90s. Um, but as a, as a Christian and as a human being now, understanding problem that I personally caused and, and, and other gang members that, that joined us. It hurts my heart, man, that we did that. That we caused such a heartache. And when you're telling me about the stories of this, this uh, mom, we need to understand that uh, uh, victims are... J- Nobody signs up to be a victim. Nobody knows when you become a victim. A victim just becomes a victim of violent crime. And when we, when we have DAs that are soft on crime, on violent crime, that doesn't help the problem. That increases the problem. Today's temperature in Los Angeles, because of a soft approach on crime is so out of control. I, I, I can't, I'll watch the news for about four minutes and then I don't want to watch it no more because it, it, something happens in my, in my brain and I wish that people understood. I, I can't stand when I, when I hear people um, when, when I hear certain groups try to make violent criminals and, and, and they pave an excuse for them. Or they grew up in the wrong area. Or they, their dad wasn't there. And I understand that some of that takes, some of that, you know, in a family without a dad, that, 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 that has a, a, a certain thing that happens to that son, that that young girl, that young daughter, because uh, there's no father figure, there's no leader in the in the family. 
but I do know that there's a lot of kids that grew up in the same way that I did who became productive, who didn't commit crimes, who excelled in school and became productive citizens, you know, in, in their communities. So, man, it, it just, it, it hurts my heart to see that. And, and, and then to, to hear from you uh, here, I mean, you, you've seen some horrendous things in the city. And, you, and you, when you walked in to, to, to Rampart, not only did you walk into a city that was coming unglued, but then you come into a department that's about to make breaking news across the country. Let's talk about that, the Rampart scandal. What happens there? The Rampart scandal has been described by some as the biggest scandal in the history of the Los Angeles Police Department. Um, and I, the Rampart era, as I call it, is August of 1995 to August of 1998. That is the heart and soul of the time that a lot of that corruption happened. When Rampart blew up, I blew up with it. When Ralph Al Perez was taken down, relieved of duty, that happened in my office. We took his badge, we took his gun. He was arrested one week later. A week after he was arrested, they moved me out of Rampart to Central. They told me it wasn't punitive, that I needed a, a change. I saw it as punitive. When that occurred, I was the first to say, how in the hell did that happen? How did I not see that coming? In fact, I went further and said, Ralph Paul Perez was my go-to guy. Best cop. How did I miss it? What did I miss? I can't tell you how many sergeants came into my office. Shocked. Where did I go wrong, Cap? How did we not see it coming? And all I could tell him back then was, <laughs> welcome to the club. I have thought long and hard about Rampart. I have a whole different perspective of how it happened, why it happened. We did see it coming. It shouldn't have gotten that far. I have dedicated my life for the last 12 years to anybody that will listen in law enforcement. And I've talked to agencies up and down the country, up and down the state. Uh, some of I've visited for a third or fourth time because it's been so long. They want, they want me to come back and give the same message as far east as Connecticut. Wow. And, uh, and I, I, I talk about constitutional policing, about leadership, about virtue, about moral imperative, about courage. Um, and um, a lot of what I look back at now and I see how it happened um, is the thing that motivates me to talk about constitutional policing. It, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's changed my whole perspective on how I talk about, about law enforcement. So I learned a lot as a result of it. Um, you know, when we first become cops, those of us in law enforcement, it doesn't take long before we lose our innocence. Uh, I remember the radio call that I responded to when I lost my innocence. I was so naive. I thought the whole world saw the world as I saw it. And I realized there's so much that goes on that I don't realize. How can people treat each other that way? And, of course, the trick is not to paint everybody with a broad brush, to put it in perspective. It's not 
the, the majority of the population. Unfortunately, as law enforcement, we're the ones that get called and have to clean it up or deal with it. And police work can get pretty ugly, very ugly. But we have a duty and an obligation once we control that ugliness is to treat people with dignity and respect in the very next second. Rampart caused me to lose another part of my innocence. How can cops cross that line? And of course, it's the same perspective. I could tell you for the next 10 hours the things that happened because we, I looked through the rear mirror and I was able to find out and put the pieces together um, from that standpoint. But at the same time, I can say um, that in looking at Rampart Division and the command that I had back then, uh, I don't want to paint everybody with a broad brush. It, it turned out to be 2% of the command that crossed that corrupt line. And every single one of those officers got what they deserved. Some didn't get as much as they should have gotten. And people will tell me sometimes, well, it's only 2%. You know, you had a command of just over 500 uh, it was about maybe 70 of them, uh, and many of them were exonerated. Rich Moraz's perspective, that's 2% too many. Uh, it's not enough that it was not 98 didn't do it. We dropped the ball. Um, Rampart didn't occur in a vacuum. It happened incrementally, the corruption. And many of us gave excuses for the minor misconduct that we saw that led up to the ugliness. And, um, and I can't fool myself. And the reason I still give the talk is because many of the law enforcement agencies that I talk to have their mini rampart. And that there's always this, this evil, this, this challenge, this uh, neglect of duty, this uh, taking advantage of authority that we have, that officers maybe not even realizing kind of gravitate towards because of all the temptation that exists. And we have a duty and an obligation within at least law enforcement to deal with it on a constant basis with those officers, which takes virtuous leadership, and some of us don't even know how to do it or even recognize it. Um, so there's a there's this there's the there's the dark side of Rampart, and there's the challenge that we fail to deal or used that caused it that consti- continues to exist, um, just because of some of the aspects of our profession that opened that door for us. And, uh, and many of us in leadership positions, and I'm talking about everybody in the department, either doesn't want to deal with it, doesn't know how to deal with it, or just backs away from it. What's your, at this moment we have, uh, during your, your time as, as captain of Rampart, we have a chief uh, by the name of Bernard Parks. What's your, what's your view on him? Well, I'm a little prejudiced. <laughs> uh, Bernard Parks was my chief. He was my second chief when I was at Rampart. Um, hardworking, workaholic, draconian disciplinary system that he brought in, arrogant to a point of negativity. Um, he had leadership traits that were based on what we were dealing with back then, with his ego that got in the way, and he was surrounded by the same type of people. On the other hand, as far as his ethics and integrity were concerned, he's been accused of protecting his daughter, protecting his niece, uh, 
uh, knowing what was going on with some of the dark side of things that were happening with Rampart and uh, didn't uh, do anything with it to protect himself. Um, I don't believe any of that. I think he had his own ethics. Um, but I would think that his leadership style, his lack of virtue, his lack of, of, of using his heart, of listening to people, um, said in his own ways, uh, was the worst thing that ever happened to us in law enforcement back then for, for LAPD. And I can go back to William H. Parker as our chief and, um, and look at, this, at the positive and negative aspects of each one of them. And I think that they all had their weaknesses. I love Daryl Gates. I think he stayed a little bit too long, <laughs> that he was past his time. Cops loved him. He lost touch with the community. Um, Michael Moore, who's our chief right now, I think he's probably one of our best chiefs. Uh, I believe in his virtue and his integrity. I think, boy, he's he's going in all different directions. I think one of our best chiefs was William H. Bratton. Uh, I, re- I think the reason he was so good is because when he came in, he came in in the middle of the consent decree. We were coming out of Rampart. We were trying to come out of it. He owed nothing to nobody. He had tremendous experience. Um, he had no allegiances to anybody. He got that consent decree to change us, and uh, I think he w- he'll go down as one of the best chiefs that LAPD has had. So all our chiefs have had their strengths and weaknesses. Um, some were at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, Bernard Parks, uh, when he did leave and he was forced to leave, I think that was one of the best things that happened. But he had a lot of strengths as well in, in what he did in changing the department. Um, th- there's certain police officers that, uh, of the 70 that are recorded, and there was a little bit over 70, right, that got implicated in the Rampart scandal. Uh, one of them is Brian uh, Liddy, I believe. Brian Liddy, huh? Yeah. Um, in his story, he talks about uh, a, a captain coming over uh, to retrieve the gun and the badge while he's in the delivery room with his wife. and They're about to have a baby. And so who is that? That is that you or, or is that no, somebody else? No, that wasn't me. Brian Liddy um, was a sergeant. Yes. He promoted. To, uh, let me say this about Brian Liddy. Right? And, you know, in my, in my, uh, one of the challenges of being a captain on LAPD is that every command you take over, you start from the ground up yeah. in, in terms of who is it. It's like a new police department. And, uh, and then, and uh, so when I came into Rampart, I had 500 strange faces looking at me from, <laughs> from my, my partner captain, who I eventually became very close to. We worked together for three years. When I first went into Rampart, I didn't. I will. I wouldn't have recognized. I, I. I wouldn't know who to look for if I try to find him. Yeah. Uh, in the office somewhere. Um, so slowly but surely, you start to um, be, build relationships, and most of the ones that I do remember are the ones that stood out, were the ones that screwed up big time. Those stand because you have to deal with them yeah. on a constant basis, and the rest kind of go into a fog. Brian Liddy is one name and one cop and one person at Rampart with me that I know very well. And my opinion of Brian Liddy is that he was one of the best cops I had at Rampart. Ralph Alperez will give you his impression of different cops. Ralph Alperez talks, talks positively about Brian Liddy. He wasn't in the loop, so to speak. And then when he got pissed off at Brian Liddy in the middle of all his interviews, which lasted uh, nine months, 50 different interviews, yeah. um, 
he, Brian Lindy was one of the dirtiest cops you could ever want to live uh, be with, and uh, it didn't prove to be true. Um, he st- he remained on the department. He promoted to sergeant. He was they were after him obviously. Uh, the way they handled him and that captain who handled him in that situation, if it's true, I have nothing to... But if it's true that he was in the delivery room with his wife, that was one of the poorest aspects of leadership as far as I was concerned. Yeah, yeah. As far as I, I am I, concerned. I, 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 but I think very highly of Brian Liddy, and that's based on the cop that he was and the way I knew he was while he was at Rampart under my command. And his conviction is overturned. Uh, yes, he, he well, he's one of the four that sued the city of LA, Eddie Ortiz, another, yes, another who one. went through hell yeah. uh, with the department because by God, we're right and we're going to get you. And uh, they relieved him of duty. He was kept afloat by cops that lived in the uh, 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 Inland Empire, giving him off-duty jobs to sustain his family, finally exonerated. Uh, came back on the department, became a leader at uh, uh, Northeast Division, Sergeant of the Year two years in a row at Central Bureau, uh, retired as a promoter as an assistant watch commander in Hollenbeck. Uh, what he went through in Brian Liddy and Buchanan and Harper, one of the highest profile trials uh, of the Rampart era. Yeah. First they were found guilty, but the judge realized she had misinformed the jury. She rewrote that whole verdict uh excluded it, mm-hmm. wrote up a justification they should be retried. When Cooley became the DA, he had a hard look at the case. By now, Ralph Perez is losing his credibility of what he, you know, they were dealing with a, a perjurer and a thief. He was a criminal. And uh, so Cooley didn't charge them. They sued the city. They won a $20 million settlement, $5 million each. Uh, 5.2. Uh, yeah. And, but- and uh, 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 Eddie Ortiz retired. Uh, at uh, I, I went to his retirement. The who's who of LAPD showed up to honor him. Wow! And he he came through that. You know his virtue. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's a it's a sad story. I mean, because you know you you can't put a, a a price. You know they called it the the rampart lottery, is what they they, they called it, right? Because so many people ended up suing the city. Uh, you're talking about 125 million dollars uh, that the city had to foot out, plus other uh, big numbers that the city had to uh, pay out to uh, both to uh, convicted felons that were wrong, wrongfully convicted and then also the, the, the police officers that unfortunately, uh, it, w- what gets to me is that how in the world did they believe Ralph Perez's story? I mean, the, the guy is just, he's a liar. I mean, that's just basically it and, and a criminal. Did did Bernard Parks, I think he just pulled the trigger too fast on people like Brian uh, Liddy. Uh, I think it was just too fast. And I don't know if it was him trying to protect the name or the, 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 the department, but boy, was that a bad, a bad call. Well, I'll give you an example, and that's, that's one of his downsides where he wants to uh, let's 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 settle this thing. Let's let's adjudicate it. Let's move forward. Uh, let's not waste time uh, going backwards and saying how did this happen? Where did we fail? We as a shared responsibility. Yeah. Where did you guys fail? Um, it got to a point where when Rafael Perez rolled over, um, and I think I mentioned just a while ago, he was interviewed for nine different months, 
50 different times. When he started the interviews, he admitted to what he and Nino Durden had done. That gave him instant credibility. That's the easy part. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the stuff that they did were, was horrendous. Uh, Javier Vando, uh, the, the, the kid they shot that's permanently paralyzed, yeah. won a $15 million settlement against the city of L.A. So he brought all those things in and gave him instant credibility. Yeah. But he had an agenda, yeah. and there were people he was going to go after. And he did it during his interviews. At the same time, Bernard Parks, dealing with a scandal, uh, as, as the chief of police of LAPD, I want this behind me as quickly as possible. Yeah. So let's, 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 let's um, press charges. Let's go to court. And Gil Garcetti, the city attor- district attorney, is saying, hold off. Yeah. we got to corroborate all this stuff that Perez is telling me. He's a, he's a perjurer. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's a drug dealer. We're not going to just uh, take his word and start uh, charging cops and going to court. So they had a head-on collision. As a, as a result of that head-on collision, Parks turns around, and this isn't very well known or publicized, but I'll, uh, this is what happened behind the scenes. He orders the LAPD Rampart Task Force detectives not to cooperate with the di- district attorney uh, detectives handling the prosecution end of it and only cooperate with the Department of Justice I- investigators who are dealing with the consent decree um, those LAPD detectives are caught in the middle. And yeah. for them to cooperate with the DA is to violate a direct order from their chief. chief. And they had the ethics to say, we have to do this, and they did it behind the scenes, sticking their neck out. When that finally came out public, the police commission called in Parks and ordered him, give him a, a, a rescind that, let this liaison continue, and they actually charged him with insubordination, did a personnel complaint against against him, conducted an investigation. The commission ruled on whether he would be guilty or not guilty of crossing that line. And by a vote of three to two, two commissioners said he crossed that line. Uh, He was exonerated. They didn't find him guilty. Otherwise, he would have been fired right then. On the spot. He lasted two two more years before he went away. The commission finally voted at the end. It's time for your your five year renewal. We don't like the way you lead the department. You're gone, and Bratton came in. Wow, man! So that's a little insight of uh, yeah. And I could spend thank another you for hour sharing that. I, yeah, that's an exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> so looking back uh, now, what's your 2020? What could have been done differently, in your opinion? Okay, so I have, and this this is where I get into my ethics my rampart story a part of a big part of my rampart story is the ugly part what perez and jordan and a handful of other cops did ruben uh, uh yes well and and the ruben palomar's part that's all I, I don't know much about that he he worked my crash unit for a while he eventually went to detectives that's another group of rogue cops that crossed the line yeah. uh and went even beyond some of the stuff perez and jordan did yeah. Um, and uh, and I think Ruben is a born again, by the way. Yeah, he is. I think he's he is. got he, his own church or something like yeah, that. Yeah, he served 17 years. Okay. And, and and so so that's a different story. Yeah. And so part of my Rampart story is I talk about uh, that corruption doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens incrementally, the, the frog in the boiling pot of water. Um, I, I give examples of that. Um, a part of that story, I talk about uh, a wonderful author by the name of... Uh, Kevin Gilmartin, who has a book called Officer Survival. It's a paperback book that we use in a leadership class that I facilitate. Yeah. 
that the students read and uh, and, re- and they fly it for their it's 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 the physiological uh, stuff that a cop goes through when he first joins the department the roller coaster the the highs and the lows and the thrill of coin go three but then the impact that all the negative aspects that they see and they keep it to themselves except with other cops when they tell war stories and it impacts their stress and and their marriage and the suicides and the ugliness and his book is called emotional survival how to help cops get through that by understanding what they're going through and how they're changing actually and they used to i used to do this i used to do that i don't do it anymore all my friends are now cops because they can relate to me and when we tell war stories i get on that high because the brain doesn't understand the difference between what's really happening and what you're imagining is happening so they're actually their body their their hyper vigilant ass body is in that black and white and they love the feeling and then when they finally finish the story and they try to relax it takes 72 hours to come to normal hmm. and before they can even get back to normal they're back at work again and there's and there you go adrenaline uh, all over so all that so this same author and the point I'm trying to make he wrote an article called Continuum of Compromise it's about a four and a half page document and he describes in there how there is a continuum to people and this is based on law enforcement, uh, how they reach a point of compromise. And what are they compromising? Their ethics, their sense of responsibility to deal with what they see going on. And unless and until they do, we go down the hill. So he breaks it down into three parts. Uh, There's a continuum. It's the frog in the boiling pot of water. Uh, Acts of omission. Acts of omission aren't doing things wrong. Acts of omission aren't doing things right. It's not a violation of policy and procedure. But we, but, but cops do it. We do it. Supervisors do it. We look the other way. We make excuses for minor misconduct. That's acts of omission. Uh, cops become less productive. And it's happening right now in law enforcement. Let me just bring this in very quickly. Yeah. Law enforcement today is facing a legitimacy crisis to a degree that we have never witnessed before. A legitimacy crisis in that cops are demoralized. They're disengaging. They're depolicing. From my perspective, my study, it happened August, it started August 9th, 2014, Ferguson. Ferguson yeah. When Ferguson blew up, it had a, a ripple effect across the country where the public got upset and everybody was painted by a broad brush. The way law enforcement was dragged into it was all the demonstrations, anti-police, and then cops crossed the line and we got pissed off and nobody understands us. Um, and we went through all that brouhaha and cops started to get demoralized and cops are being disciplined. There's some law enforcement agencies that if you're on the department, the chief can fire you on the spot. LAPD can't do that. You have to go to a board of rights. We have the best system from that standpoint. An officer can actually defend himself or herself before they fire him or her, or maybe, oh, we didn't see the other side of what you were going through, Um, things of that nature. So acts of omission is the first step of that continuum where cops disengage, depolice, if they don't care, I don't care, and they develop this attitude where I'm not going to stick my neck out and get it chopped off for making an honest mistake. And supervisors do the same thing because we coddle people. And, uh, and if there's no intervention, if there's not enough love, and I talk about love, leadership, by the way, uh, it takes us to the next step. If these are acts of commission admin, this will get us in trouble. Now we're crossing the line. Now we're chronically late. We're chronically sloppy. Uh, we start to take law, uh, law enforcement into our own hands, so to speak. Uh, unauthorized code three, driving red light and siren, illegal ammo. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going home alive. 
Uh, it winds up getting suspensions on, on different individuals. Uh, and if nobody loves you enough to intervene and what, what the hell is going on with you, let's talk about it. It takes us to the third aspect, that's acts of commission criminal, rampart, where cops now, and I'm using law enforcement as an example, based on my experience on Rampart, based on what's happened to other law enforcement across the country, I'm not making any of this stuff up because I don't make excuses for it, where officers now cross the line and they become uh, a DUIs, domestic violence, uh, uh, excessive, I'm going to take a couple extra hours of overtime, damn it, the department owes me, I've worked so many hours for not getting overtime, acts of commission criminal, and now they're gone, and now they're fired, and it's a continuum. Yeah. Um, so, so there's a process. So going back to Rampart, we have a handful of cops who crossed the line, who righteously got fired, terminated, criminally prosecuted. Um, but then we have a shared responsibility of could we have prevented it? Could we have seen that coming? Are we have, do I, we have our hand on the knob that's bringing that pot of boiling water? Uh, do we commit our own acts of omission? By not by by looking the other way, our our own acts of commission admin. So there's two sides to Rampart. There's the cops that crossed the line and righteously got caught, and then there's the shared responsibility and accountability that we failed to do to deal with that. I'll lament many times. I'll say I wish I could go back to Rampart, and I'll get emotional. You have no idea how mi- much I wish I could go back to Rampart. But when I say that. It's not to go to what I call the dark side. Because even if you're amongst it, you don't realize you're amongst it. Um, and that stuff's easy to deal with. If, if, a, if, if, if a cop or I see somebody putting the boots to someone, hell, you, they're going to push me out of the way to get to that individual. That's a line that you can't cross. But when I say I wish I could go back to Rampart, it's to go back to revisit discre- moments of truth, discretionary moments, minor misconduct, inappropriate comments, minor violations of policy and procedure um, uh, that I tolerated, that I made excuses for, that uh, it's not my responsibility. I have bigger fish to fry. I'll deal with it next time. It's an aberration. The public don't understand us, uh, you know, that that I make excuses for. Uh, When I say I wish I could go back to Rampart is to revisit every single discretionary moment that I rationalized, kissed off away. I want you to like me. Uh, the culture kicks in, I've got your back, all this stuff that we mix and don't understand the repercussions of it because there's no doubt in my mind that if I could have gone back and dealt with it like I should have dealt with it, it would have had a different ending. There's absolutely no question in my mind. And today I preach that we have a shared responsibility to be virtuous, to deal with any aspect that we see, I don't care how minor it is, that's not constitutional policing. We don't make excuses for it. Cops who watch that don't intervene commit that sin. That means they're condoning it. Why don't they intervene? Because culture kicks in. Because I'm not supposed to kick in. I got your back. And we're confused. And we're less than virtuous. We don't talk about it. We don't know how to talk about it. And I force the contact. I'm part of my responsibility that I'll do till the day I can't give talks anymore is to make it a conversation. And, and I think that what you're doing is is very, uh, it, it's important and it's needed. Um, you know, I, I just watched a video a couple of days ago of um, this couple. They're they're getting pulled over, and uh, 
two officers are uh, they're led to the back of their vehicle. Uh, they're not in uh, handcuffs or anything. They're being searched, and um, one of the police officers is uh, he's a rookie. He's in in the middle of training, uh, but he's out on the field, and uh, he's searching a female, and uh, he puts his hands where he shouldn't put his hands in a in a way that he shouldn't put his hands. And the officer that's, you know, of uh, is with more, <laughs> uh, what do I want to, what's the word I want to use? He's a good cop, man. This, this guy sees what he's, what his officer is doing and right away says, I need you to step back. I mean, that, that that takes a lot, uh, I think. That's you know? fortitude. That's courage. That's, that's courage. Uh, that's, you know what? This isn't about me or you. This is about our profession. Yes. And this is about responsibility and constitutional policing. And, and he, he, he right away says, you need to step back. Step back right now. And the rookie cop is kind of confused because uh, what did I do wrong? And uh, the lady is very, sh- she's, Say this word. I hope I get it right. She's shaken. <laughs> She's shaken. Yeah. Because and and obviously right because she, she was patted down a very wrong way and she's very teary eyed uh, and and this officer the other the the other officer that, that that's doing the right jo- uh, job he says I'm so, he he's apologetic to to this lady he says I'm I'm very sorry um, you know we are allowed to pat you down but we're supposed to use the back of our hand. What he did was wrong, and uh, I am so sorry. Uh, just want to let you know that my camera is on, my mic is on. You'll be able to to have this uh, if you need it. And and I sat back and I locked. Uh, I looked at this. I watched this video and I went, "Wow, that that's that's very brave. That's the right thing to do." You know, uh, um, whether it was an accident or an oversight from the other police officer. Um, I, I I thank God for uh, men and women in law enforcement that still believe that there's a right way to do it and then a wrong way to do it, and they'll stand up to a culture that can very easily, like how you said, whether you maybe didn't see it or decided to ignore it, uh, but when it when when someone steps up to the plate and owns it, something different about that individual. You know. Um- Part of my theme is that you encourage what you tolerate. Mm. Or if you fail to challenge, you appear to sanction. Wow. Um, and I dovetail that into officer safety. When I say the word officer safety in a group of law, in a law enforcement s- setting, all the heads go up. That's huge in our profession. Mm. And, and, and when I say physical tactics, 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 everybody understands that. And we and 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 that is a principle in law enforcement. I've got your back, and I will run towards gunfire to get you out of harm's way if necessary. I won't even think about it, and in doing it, I don't even realize I'm doing it because I'm trained that way. Yeah. Um, we will go home alive. It's all about tactics. It's all about um, emotional courage. The general public doesn't even understand this. Cops understand it. And uh, so when I talk that language, all the heads are nodding. We all understand it. And so if I 
pull you out of a minor uh, dangerous situation and I grab you by the seat of the pond, so you'll probably thank me. Uh, you know, th- th- you just saved my life, perhaps. Who knows? Because yeah. I was going in a direction. That's tactics. And uh, and I asked the cops in the in the setting, how important is that in our relationship, in our profession, the culture? And they all say, man, that's it. I mean, there's, nobody will argue that. Top notch. That, yeah. that physical tactics, officer safety. I've got your back. But then I bring in the other part of it. Your example. I said, there's a part of officer safety we do a terrible job on, and I call it ethical tactics. That's also I've got your back. That's also, um, you know, something that we don't train each other on that. It's not hardwired in us so that we automatically react like that other officer you just said did. That ethical tactics is also I've got your back. We do a terrible job in either understanding it or instilling it. It's just as important as physical tactics. One will get you killed. The other will get you fired. Uh, we do a terrible job on one. The hardwiring emotional reaction to that should be that when an incident like that happens, officers immediately, I just saved your career perhaps. Yeah. You might, still might get fired. Mm-hmm. But you know, here I pulled you out of harm's way and I saved your life. Here I pulled you out of harm's way and I saved you from getting a big suspension and maybe getting fired. Um, in your law enforcement career. And so let's talk about ethical tactics. What does that look like? Why don't we preach it? How do we train? How, how is that imp- going to pa- impact the continuum of compromise? How is that going to turn the heat down on the frog in the boiling pot of water that will eventually boil to death because of our lack of ethical tactics? So that's an important aspect that I think in law enforcement we don't do a real good job on. Yeah, but that's what you're doing, and in it, I, I believe that you're educating in an, in a full circle, uh, and leaving nothing undone. Uh, you're turning every stone upside down, mm-hmm. and I think that's so important because, you know, you you, and I get it just listening to you because I think the only other people that would understand that I got your back thing would be military, uh, in a setting of war, you know, you're running towards gunfire you're running towards and if somebody is your partner your your, your field you know friend is out there you're gonna you're gonna do that you mm-hmm. do that from, without even thinking twice yeah you know I, I, it, it's 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 in, I think that you're doing an incredible job in educating law enforcement at large uh, by going out and 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 speaking these things um, you know we're at a just a couple of days ago, two two nights ago, um, we have a Roe versus Wade. That's a, a big hot ticket item right now with the Supreme Court, and uh, in downtown Los Angeles, some uh, I don't like calling them protesters, especially when they're they're throwing bottles and breaking stuff and starting trouble. That's not a protester. It's a rioter, mm-hmm. uh, and I have a <laughs> I have a hard time uh, uh, hearing the news. Uh, calling them peaceful protesters, that that there's nothing peaceful about that. Those are people that are seeing an opportunity to break into stores, get stuff, and go home. That's really what they are. And here we are again revisiting these times because we had a little cool down since the Ferguson, since. Uh, all the the rioting that happened nationwide, 
And so we've had about, I'd say, about a good year and a half of kind of cooling down. and You know, uh, people are kind of just, it, it's a weird time, I think, because I think there's a group that, that's kind of at the edge of their seat going, all right, so what are we going to do? Uh, are, are we going to, you know, are, are, are we friends again, right, with, with law enforcement? Are we, are we friends again? Did we break up? Uh, what, what's going on? That's how, that's yeah. what it seems like. Right, the love-hate relationship. The, where where ex- are we? Exactly. <laughs> where are we? <laughs> We're passing notes right now <laughs> in the classroom. Like, like, like that song, first I love me, then I hate you. Then yeah, I- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know where we're at right now, right? But I think that that for the majority of our nation and, and the majority of Los Angeles, you know, because that's where we're at, um, I, I think that the adults are starting to become adults. And my, what I mean by that is, no, we need you guys. We need you guys. And, and, and you're important to society. You're important to safety. Um, I, I'm going to say this. It might, uh, you're probably friends with them. You made a comment about uh, uh, the chief, the current chief right now. I'm not a big fan of the guy. And uh, I, I think he's too, too um, I think he's too soft. I think he's too soft on what's going on right now uh, with 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 the crime rate. Um, I'm not a big fan of the mayor. You know, uh, uh, I I just think that it, it it's they're they're creating an atmosphere of or a a false sense of real security in our community. Um, you know, I I, I I I'm disappointed in in. Um, in, in some of the stuff that's going on, you know, I, I think that there, there needs to be some, some changes, some major changes in, in our city. And I understand there's, there's a whole lot of politics. Politics, politics are it's never a clean deal. I mean, that's just how it is. But I think some, some, some changes need to be done. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, Gascon is recalled i really hope that this uh this guy is recalled he has done nothing but damaged los angeles uh taking uh, gang enhancements out of the way gun enhancements out of the way uh getting rid of uh you know, now you could be 17 years old get a weapon kill somebody and you're going to the california youth authority till you're 25 doesn't matter what you did essentially if i mean you could do up to that, and gang members and gang leadership reads that and says, "Hey, so the shot callers and the gang leaders—they're not doing the dirty work. They're going to send that 16-year-old, that 15-year-old, that 17-year-old go do it, and they're going to do it. And they're going to really—they're getting away with it, uh, in my eyes. That needs to change. It really does. And 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 I think that when you have a DA." a police chief and a mayor that is, I, I just, I, I, I can't get on the same boat with them as far as what, what, what I'm, I'm seeing. And I think we have a, a great perspective, you and I, because you from a law enforcement view and me from an ex-convict view, uh, we see things. We, 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 we understand things. Um, how do we get back our city how do we get our, our city back to where the kids are playing out in the streets? How do we get our city back to where 
people aren't afraid to be followed home because they might end up getting tied up and and then ransacked and and beyond that you know but there there's been a in the criminal world there has been a golden ticket for them to commit outlandish acts of violence. And it doesn't matter what time of day it is. doesn't matter if there's HD cameras all around. doesn't matter if somebody's filming them. Um, you know, in the, in the Melrose area has been affected with violent crime. In the past five months, it is, it, it is the go-to place for gangs to go in there. Uh, the murder rate there is just, it's Melrose. The Fairfax di- district, and I and I think that now, <laughs> the 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 defunding of police, that thing. The dumbest thing I've ever heard. But those are the same people, in my opinion, that, you know, went outside and let's defund the police. Well, now, <laughs> they're being followed home in in their Beverly Hills homes. In their Fairfax district homes, well, those are if you're uh, if you're in another state and you're listening to this this interview, this this episode, those are very high end communities, and what I mean by that is the economics there is is awesome. The most expensive homes are there. Uh, you know, celebrities live there, and and now that they see that they're the ones that are getting followed home. They're the ones that are getting broke into. And all of a sudden, right, all of a sudden, um, we're not starting to like this. Well, you're the very people that decided that you wanted to defund the police. Well, this is the result of defunding the police. And, and uh, so how do we get to, how do we get our city back? You know, it's interesting because you hit a lot of nails on the head. And, and clearly, one of my philosophies is not, not what happens to us that affects our behavior. It's our interpretation of what's happening to us. And, and media is so, it has such a, a, a pull on people because most people are lazy. <laughs> they sit back, watch the media, and they ebb and flow based on what the headline is. Yeah. Without, uh, you know, standing up and saying, wait a minute, where am I? Where do I live? What's going on around me? Headline and, readers. Uh, right. Um, and thank God I don't live there and, and all that type of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, some uh, of, of the things that you touched on are, are really black and white for me. Uh, the, the, the DA philosophy today that's going on and the enhancements and all that. I understand where George is coming from, George Gascon. He, he was one of my assistant chiefs when I was a captain before he left LAPD. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he left the department. Yeah, he went to Arizona, became chief shortly in and, and when he was an LAPD assistant chief, uh, we loved him. I mean, he, I don't know what happened to him. He drank the Kool-Aid. I don't, I don't know what. <laughs> so, so a lot of what you're saying now is, is like, what happened to Pobre Jorge? I, I understand because I read very closely his, he's a, he's a deep thinker. You know, he started in LAPD 10%. Uh, one of his theories was that 70% of the crime is committed by 10% of the criminal. Find the shot callers. Find the, the, the hardcore corrupt criminals, and crime will come down. And it worked. He was right on that. That's how he thinks. And now his philosophy is based on um, 
rehabilitation, you know, that, that we have to let this in. And, and, and I don't buy that. I don't yeah. understand it. Um, I know how he thinks. Um, I don't know if he's right or not. I don't want to think that deeply. There's clearly chaos in the, dis- uh, the district attorney's office right now, and it's, there's a clash going on. Yeah. The inside people and the outside people. The mayor's office, uh, that's so political. Yeah. Uh, with, with Michael Moore, he deals with the police commission. And many times Michael Moore comes public is he dealing with a media issue? Yeah. Behind the scenes, he's sitting at 10,000 police law enforcement agencies. That's not where he's wringing his hands, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. The things that aren't publicized that impact the quality of our life uh, is the grand gang crime, as an example. We still have tremendous gang crime. Oh, yeah. We have black on black, brown on black uh, murders that are happening that nobody even knows about or even understands that has occurred since I was a captain. I'll give you an example. When I was, I ended my career at Southeast Division. I got promoted to Captain 3. And I rarely tell this story. Uh, William H. Bratton called me into his office. I thought I was going to be in the penalty box for the rest of my career. And, and the fact, the guy who took me into his office was George Gascon. He was an assistant. He said, the chief wants to talk to you. I had about a year and a half left. I thought, okay, um, I, I knew the exact last day that I was going to work. It's called a drop program. And um, I had just been promoted to Captain 2 by Braddon, and I was, I was in charge of Commercial Crimes Division. Chief sat me down, just him and I, and he said, I have a rampart brewing in this particular division. And uh, he said, I know all about rampart. I have my own opinion. I've studied what, what, what happened, how it happened, why it happened. And uh, he said, I have 60-something captains to pick from, to send, to clean that up, and I'm sending you. Right about that point, I'm, I'm breaking down. I'm starting to get emotional. I'm thinking, this man is going to give me my dignity back. He's going to give me a chance to prove and to learn from my mistakes. Yeah. And he, sa- and he got emotional. And he said, when you leave, the, I'm promoting you to Captain 3. You have carte blanche to do whatever you want. Run that command. Turn it around. We've got some sergeants we're looking at. You're going to have a brand-new captain partner that we just promoted. His name was Horace Frank. He recently retired as an assistant chief. And I went in there and gave it everything I could. I was able to implement all my philosophies. And I'm getting to your point from this standpoint. Yeah, yeah. The violence in that command was under, we had housing uh, developments. Uh, we had gangs killing each other. Um, I had a couple of high-profile uh, shootings that occurred that made the media, you know, officers that got involved in an OIS, and they wanted his, his or her neck, and the commissioning called in the chief, and it was Bratton, and he called me and, give me what you got. I'm going to take this commission on. He, one of his famous quotes back then was, uh, he was talked by, by protesters as saying, uh, he said, take care of your cops. And his response was, take care of your children. <laughs> he threw it right back at them. Yeah, and, yeah. and here's where he was coming from. Yeah. So I go to a community meeting, and, and they've got the picket signs already. And they've got my, the name of the individual that was, that was, that was shot by the police officer. Uh, and whatever the circumstances are, and they're chanting his name. And he's a gang member. And they want my neck, and they want my chief bureau chief's neck, and my chief's neck. And we're going to sit down, and then we're going to have a talk about this. Your cops. So, and they start. And and when I finally start, I pull out my little list, 
and I, knew, I read off 10 names. And they all say, who are they? I said, they're the kids in your community that were killed in the last three weeks by gang violence. Mm. Does anybody care about them? Yeah. Are we here to discuss the crime in our neighborhood and the shared responsibility we have to these families that are suffering as a result? It's not in the media. It's not going to be. No. Brad's not going to talk about that. But this is the reality of what we're dealing with. We're dealing with crime, that, and, and that's what I dealt with at Rampart, the heartbreak, the anger. I, I, yeah. I would have community meetings in, in my office going back to Rampart, and I learned this from them, and I brought it with me when I had, took over the new command. Standing room only in my small office, uh, speaking Spanish because 60% of Rampart couldn't speak in- yeah. English uh, that, to this day. Yeah. And, 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 and they were angry, and they were demanding, and not mad at my cops, not mad at me. They were mad at the gangs in the street. And they would tell me, Capitan, you cops in this country, you don't know how to deal with gangs. Where we come from, Nicaragua, El Salvador, the cops know how to deal with gangs. You've got to take them down to the Alley River. You've got to have a little conversation <laughs> with them. When you bring them back, don't drop them off in their gang territory. Drop them off in another gang's territory and tell that gang they're there. Let them, let the other gang, they would tell me, mijo, let the other gangs take care of your problem for you. And I was always telling them, we don't operate that way in this country. Yeah, yeah. We have what's so, so you can see the, the yeah. things that we deal with in our own communities yes. and the violence and the heartbreak that the media could care less about. They never say a Michael word Michael Moore that. isn't there dealing, talking about that. No. When he goes back to his office, he deals with it. He starts programs. He's turned Jordan Downs around with a tremendous program that he developed because he lets his people do their work. So when I say he's doing a hell of a job, I'm, talking, not, I'm not talking about, yeah. I'm talking about what he does behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. That day in and day out. Uh, and I think he's doing a pretty d- d- good job about that. No, you know, and so the, and, and it all boils back to a shared responsibility to yes. come on. The people are the police, the police are the people, and communities get neglected. Yeah. And and they want to talk about homelessness, which is a big problem, obviously, yeah. all across the city. Yeah. But we to this day, we still don't talk about juggler issues of crime in our communities yeah. like we should. And you know, everybody's sick and tired of uh, of the crime. And and I love that what you just said, you know, um, because it I hope that this episode goes bananas all over the place because it's so important. What you just said was it's so important. The media is never going to cover that side. They're never going to go into a community and say, hey, you know, <laughs> let's hear your voice as a whole. Um, let's hear what you guys are going through. Nobody wants a helicopter on top of their building every single night. Nobody wants to see sirens and, and the corner, uh, you know, the van right there as they wake up and go to, go, go to work or go to, to church or whatever it is. People are tired of that. And um, I, 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 I hope and I, and I pray for our city. I hope that, man, we could come together. This is why um, I think this doing this and God allowing us to have a bridge uh, where we can sit down with you guys um, and, and, and share your experience and our experience. And I think we have vital information that we can put out there to help the situation at hand right now. Uh, I hope that somehow you and I can do something together in this yeah. beautiful city, man. I, I am all... You, you know, one thing I didn't mention when, yeah. I, when I talked about... I was talking about Jordan Downs. Uh-huh. And, and what it really... That program that was put together was the police and working with the gangs. 
you know, the basketball tournament uh, that would uh, that would, that they would play at, at midnight uh, when all the gangbanging is going on, and it, and it goes back to the police working with gangs, and uh, all we need each other uh, towards that goal. Uh, and, and you just, what you just said right now, it's, it's uh, you know, the co- collaboration that's necessary, the trust that has to be built, uh, the feeling of that I'm somebody, that I matter, um, that uh, you understand what I'm doing and I understand what you're doing. And let's have a dialogue about that. Yeah. And it's all for the same purpose. It's to save lives. That's it. Have man. a safe community and think about the children that live here that get caught in the middle of all this stuff. And that's, 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 the, that's the thing, right? There's kids, man, and uh, man, does it ache when I drive around Los Angeles and I still see the bars on windows. I still see the f- the iron fences around apartment buildings, and that is the the residue of the 1980s, the mid 1980s, all the way to you know uh, your time at Rampart. I wish those those fences weren't there. I wish those gated windows weren't there. And I wish that we could return to a time where we just did life together. And it was it was so good. Those times before all the gang and the drugs on the streets, man, it was a good time in Los Angeles. I don't know how we're if if and if it's even possible to get back even just a minor percent of that back. It's always possible. It's always it's possible. It's always possible. Amen. One of my favorite quotes, we're all angels, but with one wing. And the only way we can fly is to embrace one another. Wow. That's some good stuff. And that's man. what we have to do. The people are the police. The police are the community. We have to somehow embrace one another. Somebody's got to start that dialogue. Yep. And maybe it'll start screaming and hollering and let's get all that out. Yeah. And now anything else? No. Okay. So let's now. Let's rebuild. Yeah. Let's talk common values and principles. Captain Richard, man, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge, your wisdom uh, on this podcast, on this episode. I know that you took a little drive. Uh, Hopefully we get something to eat. You allow me to. Take you out to a, to a good lunch. But thank you so much for your valuable time uh, being spent here. I am grateful for your life, for your service uh, to Los Angeles, to people everywhere. Um, you're valuable. And, and I thank you. I thank God for your life. I'm glad that you get to enjoy your retirement with family. Uh, I see you on Facebook, <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> And I love, uh, I just recently ran across one of your pictures. You're in some balcony with a barbecue, and I thought, <laughs> that's my kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> anybody, that, you know, anybody that can barbecue, especially on a, on a Traeger, especially on a Traeger, I mean, you know, you're my friend at that point. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I'll, I'll end my little piece with the way I started. Yes. It was an honor for me to be here. It's an honor to know you. I think you're a tremendous, virtuous man. Um, and I uh, really uh, honor everything you've said this whole time right now as we've been talking. I, I know where your heart is at, where your soul is at, uh, the work you're doing, the impact you're having, 
And uh, thank you for giving me this opportunity to share with you and to build on your virtue, my virtue, and carry it forward. Yeah, man, thank you. Um, hopefully we do something really cool together, man. Uh, I'm looking forward to anything that you, whatever, however I can help in any way, um, you know, you have my number. Let's do something. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Likewise, I feel. Los Angeles, um, man, uh, what a, a great time we've had uh, in this episode. I love you guys. Um, and you know how I end it. I end every episode in the same way. I'll never be ashamed of doing it. Keep Jesus first. Love you guys. <laughs>